Al Anderson Afternoons, the podcast. We're going to have to do without the Hudson's Bay store in downtown Winnipeg. Uh, it closed last night at 5 o'clock forever. It was supposed to close forever in February, but because of these tough uh, restrictions on retailers with COVID-19, the decision was made to close it uh, earlier. And uh, joining us now, past president of the Manitoba Historical Society, history buff in general, Gordon Goldsboro. Gordon, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Hal. Thank you for doing this. Really appreciate it. So I'm asking people to say what they'd like to see happen with the old uh, Bay Building downtown there. What would you like to see happen with it? Well, it's a good, solid building. It's structurally very solid. It's uh, got concrete floors. It's, it was designed, of course, to carry a lot of weight. And I think, therefore, it would be an ideal location to make what I'm calling the Manitoba Memory Center. Hmm, interesting. So with all that history there, it could uh, encase other Manitoba and Winnipeg history, eh? Exactly. You know, so for example, immediately south of that building, we have the uh, building that houses the provincial archives. And that's the largest archive in Manitoba by far, and yet they don't have enough storage space. I mean, they're always chronically short of space. And what better space than right next door in an old Hudson Bay company? In fact, there's even a better connection because among the collections at the Provincial Archives are the records of the Hudson's Bay Company. So wouldn't that be perfectly appropriate to have all of those HBC records in an old HBC store? I think it's great. And I like the way you think, Gordon, because I'm a history buff too, right? Whether it's antiques or vintage stuff or buildings, I, I love it as well. I think the problem with that idea, and I don't want to you know, rain on your parade here or be a negative Nelly, but I think the problem is something like that might require government money, and I think government money might be short now because of COVID-19. What do you think of that? Uh, indeed, that's true. Um, but, but on the other hand, there could be other governments involved. It need not be simply the provincial government that weighs in on this. You know, So, for example, the city of Winnipeg has what is widely considered to be one of the best collections of, of, of municipal records anywhere in the country, and it's in a terribly inadequate space right now. It's in an industrial warehouse, and they're actually looking for a better place for those city records. So, you know, rather than just maybe making it rely on just the provincial government, why not making it a one-stop shop? You know, have the city of Winnipeg archives in there. Have other uh, rec- archival records. You know, there's other archives that are likewise short of space, you know, if, and if you make it sort of a multi-stakeholder facility, it seems to me you can draw on a lot more support. But fundamentally, I'm also of the mind that you should hopefully engage somehow and get people to contribute directly. So, for example, let's say, for instance, I have some old family records that I don't want to see destroyed, but I don't have space for them myself. Couldn't they have a, like a private facility where I would then pay to have those records professionally curated and stored? That would then generate revenue. So it seems to me, if you put our thinking caps on, we can make a facility that wouldn't actually be a, a huge cost to the provincial government. Well, and now's the time we've, we have to be having these conversations, absolutely. Um, I mean, it is big enough that it could be what you're talking about and other things as well. Obviously, there's going to be, I don't know if uh, pressure is the right word, because, uh, you know, this COVID-19 has sort of kicked the heck out of a lot of things, uh, including maybe the desire for private enterprise 
mm-hmm. to be involved in a building like that in in downtown Winnipeg. But you know, you 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 wonder about retail, which that would be a bit of a stretch right now. But maybe condos. It really could be many things, including what yeah. you're talking about, Gordon. Yeah, the, the building has 15 acres of floor space. I mean, that's that's huge. You know, and that's why I think you're right. You know, a, a multi-use facility makes an awful lot of sense. You could even have museums in there, retail space on the ground level, office space. I mean, it, it, yes, there, I think there's room for lots of things in there, uh, as long as I think there is some provision for using it in a way that I, celebrates Manitoba. Mm-hmm. What's the difference between this old Hudson's Bay store and Eaton's. Is it because were more people willing to say goodbye to that Eaton's building because there was a plan for an arena to go there, and we don't really have a plan for this spot, and we want to we want to save that history, or have our thoughts on this changed over the years? Well, I think the loss of the Eaton's building has galvanized people's attention on this. I mean, now that we know that it, that that Eaton's building wasn't as structurally compromised as they were intimating at the time. You know, and, and now it's, it, we, there, there, there's no question that this building is in good, solid condition. That, you know, nobody can claim that, it's, that it needs to be torn down because it's in poor condition. And, of course, we, also, we, we, we have an arena now. So, you know, what would they propose to build, a second arena? That, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. So mm-hmm. I just don't think the argument flies that we have to tear the building down as, a, as the only possible route of, uh, for using that space. Yeah, I, I agree. And I know often, you know, the attitude is tear it down and build new. It's easier. It's it's better. Uh, but I agree with you completely. I think we have to figure something out using what's there in some way or another. Yep. I mean, there's, there's a lot of character in that building. It's well built. I mean, say it's not structurally uh, unsound at all. And, and so, therefore, we shouldn't just tear down just because it's old. Mm-hmm. Are we as good as we should be at protecting our history in, in Winnipeg and Manitoba, including buildings like this, Gordon? Um, it, yeah, I think we're certainly better than some places, but we're not as good as others. Uh, Winnipeg has a, got a pretty good track record. Uh, I mean, yes, of course, we can always point to some examples where we haven't protected buildings that we might have, but at least we do have some really precious buildings. And we have the Exchange District, for example, which is world class. I mean, I'm really glad that we've managed to save it. But, you know, other parts of Manitoba aren't as good. You know, we see, for example, right now there's a, there's a historic building in Brandon that's going to be demolished to make way for a new bridge. And it pains me because they could have built the bridge in a different way that it would have preserved that old building. And, and that they just decided, no, old is bad, new is good, so let's tear it down. And, you know, so there are parts of Manitoba that they don't have quite the same appreciation as, uh, as, as they do in Winnipeg. Yeah, Gordon House on uh, Wellington Crescent recently just came down. That that must have upset yeah. you. Oh, that was. I mean, we we kind of expected it. I mean, the the the, the owner of the site was planning to do that. It was just a matter of getting the legal uh, ducks in a row. But uh, the fact that it came down so fast was a shock. I mean, you know, the, we thought that there was going to be some more sober sober second thought, but it just mattered. A matter of a few hours, literally, it was torn down. So yeah, well, you you win some, you lose some. I, I'm sorry to see the garden house go, but I'm hopeful that we can save others. And see the, 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 the Bay Building, I really hope we can save it. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned the building in Brandon that's in jeopardy and, and Gordon House and now the Bay. Are there any other buildings out there? Because often it, it takes a bigger story about a building or, or a historical uh, structure to get us interested in this. Are there any other buildings or areas that are at risk out there that maybe we aren't aware of? Oh, absolutely. You know, every year the Manitoba Historical Society that I work with uh, publishes a list of sort of what we consider our sort of top ten uh, you know, at-risk buildings. And, and, and I'm sorry to say that the Gordon House was on our top ten building list um, this year. Uh, so it's, it's, that's one that's gone. Um, but, and and the, uh, the one building in, in Brandon likewise was on our list. But there are other buildings out there that are at risk, too. So, for example, there is a grain elevator at Tyndall, Manitoba yeah. that was in remarkably good condition. I mean, it was just, it had so much of its original structure still there. Uh, and we had really high hopes that it could be moved and preserved at a museum in Beauceshire. Unfortunately, it's looking more and more like it's not going to happen. It's been vandalized recently. It's in, it's in deteriorating condition. So unless something happened really soon, I, I fear that that elevator at Tyndall is probably going to be gone soon. You know, there, there's other ones. There's there's an, a warehouse building at Brookdale, northeast of, uh, of Brandon. There's an old brick, beautiful brick house in Emerson that's at risk. The Masonic Temple in downtown Winnipeg. I mean, you know, that thing's been empty now for, it looks like, I mean, almost a decade. And um, nothing seems to be happening. I mean, you know, what, you know there's a, a beautiful historic building that's just sitting empty. And I fear that something's going to happen to this. You know, there's a whole long list of these buildings that I think are in jeopardy if something doesn't get done to them. That we have to find a new use. That's the key. You know, you, you just can't wave your arms and say, well, it's historic, you know, and leave it at that. You've got to find a, a, a genuine use for it. And that's why I say, you know, the, the Bay Building will only be used if we find something good to use it for. And I think they, at least one purpose is, is store the memory of the province. Gordon, thanks a lot for this. Keep up the great work. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you for your attention. It is Giving Tuesday, and Lance Latane joins us now. On the phone, the Manitoba Event Coordinator at Parkinson Canada. Lance, good afternoon. Hello, Hal. Thank you for doing this. Appreciate it. Hello. Um, uh, Giving Tuesday, uh, do you see an increase on a day like today? This has kind of become a big deal every year. Are, are you seeing more giving on this Giving Tuesday? Well, I sure would like to, to think so. Um, you know, we all have a lot of uh, very... Uh, uh, really encouraging uh, people associated with Parkinson Canada. And, uh, yeah, we've seen really good positive results, uh, actually surprising results uh, with how much people have been giving. Here's my thought, because we've got this pandemic, and that is certainly impacting a lot of people, and it's made it difficult for organizations like Parkinson Canada. But I think also uh, maybe they can't give as much, or maybe they find a different way to give, but I think, you know, Winnipeggers and Manitobans continue to be some of the most generous and giving people in the country. And I think even during a pandemic, they have figured out a way to try and do that for the most part, not just today. I couldn't agree with you more, Hal. It's, it's absolutely fat, like what people are doing to, you know, I can appreciate it's hard. People are cautious about asking people for donations when there's a lot of uncertainty right now with the pandemic. Um, but, you know, those people that have been asking, they've been getting a really good result in, in the feedback. And, uh, yeah, we, we've definitely benefited as a charity 
um, from the contributions that people are making in spite of the current uh, health conditions we're living through. I've, I've said this a few times. Um, little things that happen now, uh, little acts of kindness even, uh, you know, the person in front of you buying the coffee for you and things like that, they seem to matter more right now, Lance. I don't know if you get that sense as well. Uh, do they ever count? You know what? It's all those little things. You know, when you, we get, you, you go on with life, you realize that all those little things that count uh, make a big difference in, in how you shape the, the way you think about now, but also how you uh, think about moving forward into the future. Mm-hmm. Um, how can people give to Parkinson Canada on this Giving Tuesday? Well, on this Giving Tuesday, the best way would be to contact uh, us through online at uh, parkinson.ca. Again, there's www.parkinson.ca. And you get to the main page, and you'll see a Donate Now uh, button on the main page. So that would by far be the easiest way, and much appreciated. Mm-hmm. And kind of the only way right now, you know, I mean, especially with these really tough restrictions right now, hopefully in the next, you know, week or two, uh, they loosen a bit, although I'm not sure if I feel optimistic about that, but we can't wait for them to loosen a bit uh, because, you know, when all this began in the spring, organizations like Parkinson Canada had to change the way you fundraise. All those in-person events had to come to an end. Everything went virtual and and uh, so it's it's really been a challenging time uh, for you guys, too. Yeah, we really did have to pivot. And uh, to give everybody else credit, everybody else kind of pivot, pivoted at the same time. I know with Parkinson Canada, we're going digital first now, moving forward. And our constituents, uh, for the most part, have really caught on and are very encouraging in, in being able to, uh, you know, give uh, virtually, uh, so online, and then also being able to participate in our and our numerous fundraising events, uh, a lot of them we're looking at going into the future as well, at least for this uh, spring and su- spring and summer, uh, that everything will be uh, kind of virtual again. Uh, so, yeah, kind of planning, but everybody seems to have caught on and uh, are continuing to, to, to give to us. Lance, thanks for your time today and, and all the best and good luck with all your fundraising at Parkinson Canada. All the best to you, Hal. Thank you very much. Paul Violas joins us now, CBS Law Enforcement and Security Analyst. Paul, good afternoon. Al, great to join you. Yeah, thank you for doing this. I found this interesting, your your story today that you're working on is the fact that while we're uh, anxiously awaiting the vaccines, we will also, with those vaccines, see vaccine scams. What can you tell us about this? Well, you know what, Hal, this is certainly not a U.S. issue. It's a global issue. I mean, right. just, just the Department of Homeland Security has already identified over 70,000 websites that they suspect as being COVID-19 related fraudulent sites. And, and what you've got is desperate. It's, it's the old desperation plus fear equals criminal opportunity. And that's exactly what we're seeing here. We saw this back in April, May. Uh, we saw this with with. Websites showing that, you know, we have home test kits and we have the ability to ascertain whether or not you've got this or not. Mm-hmm. And we found that obviously was false. So there are some key things people need to really watch out for preemptively before they get involved in something something like this. Yeah, we saw that with PPE, including masks. So what do we have to watch out for, Paul? Well, the big thing, I can tell you how the big thing for all of your listeners is if you see some, if, if you get an email or a text message um, that's that's talking to you about treatments and vaccines 
don't pay attention to it because it's simply not going to be valid. And if, in fact, you really feel that you're, in, you're enthused by this or it appears to be coming from a credible source, look up that credible source yourself, go to that original site, and, and chances are you're going to find out that it's fraudulent. The other thing is make sure that your doctor, the doctor that you plan on going to, whether it's a clinic, your doctor, is approved to administer the vaccine. Uh, do not buy COVID-19 vaccines or treatments over the Internet. Do not buy COVID-19 vaccines or treatments through online pharmacies. I mean, these are some of the things that if you keep this for, at the forefront, how you could really avoid being victimized. And it's so important because we've got in-state and non-state actors in the cyber world that are looking to make tens, if not more, billions of dollars off of this fraudulent activity. We have to be very careful. Yeah, I mean, this is a really lucrative opportunity uh, for these bad actors out there, isn't it? Well, of course it is, because, again, what do you have? You have widespread fear. We have a global pandemic, and you've got people that want to get back to work. They want their life back. They've been incarcerated in their homes, you know, for, what, 10 months. And there's really nothing on site except for some talk about, yes, it's coming, yes, it's coming. People are anxious. People are fearful. People are desperate. And when you put these things together, it gives nefarious individuals the opportunity to take advantage of that and to exploit that vulnerability. Paul, thanks a lot for this. Good advice. Always a pleasure, sir. Have a great day. Yesterday, I talked to a a member of Springs Church. They held a drive-in service on the weekend. That goes against... Uh, the COVID-19 public health order because the orders the way they are right now ban all religious gatherings, cultural gatherings of any kind, even drive-in. And I want to get a lawyer's perspective on this. Uh, In the U.S., the Supreme Court in the state of New York, but the Supreme Court in the U.S., side which is more conservative now after donald trump a republican president but it sided with churches in new york uh, where do you come down on the issue here is it about rights or responsibilities well it's about both how uh, under our charter of rights there there are guaranteed freedoms with respect to worship and religion and in my opinion based on what the courts have said in canada in the past regarding charter breaches. Uh, Based on that, I don't view the public health orders about which some, uh, some isn't probably a good word, uh, about which very few, and I think there's two, maybe three, uh, churches are complaining about. uh, And the reason for that is uh, twofold. One, uh, the based on what the courts have said, uh, these aren't charter breaches. Uh, number two, if a court and courts rule different ways on different days, <clears throat> uh, and whether it's a lower court, appeal court, or supreme court, um, it makes all the difference in the world. But if a court should happen to rule that there were charter breaches, uh, then there's a Provision section one of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms says that even if there was a breach, uh, that the breach is justified due to the public interest. Well, let's talk about the public interest, which we've mm-hmm. talked about in the past. Right. Much has been written on that. There's a great, mm-hmm. great English philosopher by the name of John Stuart Mill. 
and he wrote a book called On Liberty. Well, what's that all about? Freedom. Freedom to what? Freedom to do whatever you want? No, I don't think so. And that's what the charter is all about. It's not the freedom to do whatever you want when you want. Your freedom stops when you encroach on someone else's freedom. The freedom of the whole of the rest of the population to try and minimize exposure to the COVID-19. So if the public health folks in Manitoba say that that there will be increased risks to the public if people gather together, whether at a cultural event, a casino, a church, a beverage room, or in their cars, if they're not from, and who's going to know if they're from the same household when they're in the car? Mm-hmm. So if the public health people say that that encroaches on the health and well-being of the population in Manitoba, well, then that's an encroachment on the freedom of those people to to have that risk minimized. Then I had a look at another another book that contains some laws. Uh, among them, this book, it's called The Bible, contains <laughs> Ten Commandments. You may yes. have heard of them. I'm familiar with a few of those, yep. Right, and in the New Testament... Uh, there's reference to a couple of commandments that rise above the other 10. And one of them, and I I don't have it verbatim, but I'm going from memory, is love your neighbor as yourself. And the other is do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And that goes right back to what John Stuart Mill had said. I mean, none of this stuff is new, Hal. Mm -hmm. And the charter... The charter, it came a long time after the Bible, a long time after John Stuart Mill, but it's it's the same principle that that the freedom the freedom of of all of us is constrained by where that freedom could do harm to others. So mm-hmm. going back to those commandments, yeah. do unto others as you would have them do unto you, that's mm-hmm. the same principle, Hal. And that's why, in my opinion, a court is not going to favor uh, folks who are claiming that they've had their rights infringed under the charter, when I don't think they have, uh, if, if what they're doing causes damage or harm or risk of damage or harm to the rest of the population. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the reason, you know, some people get upset by this is because there are some retailers that are having drive-in stores, essentially, in their parking lots. And so some of these uh, church members and churches say, well, if they can do it in retail, why can't we do it here? But that doesn't matter, eh? As far as you're concerned, it's still a pretty uh, cut-and-dry case? Uh, Hal, remember, this is the law. It's not (laughs) cut-and-dry. There's nothing right. cut and dried about the law. If there was, yeah. if the law was cut and dried, people in my business wouldn't have anything to do. Because well, right, because be no it's argument. about opinions. You get a lawyer on one side and a lawyer on the other side. You argue your case, and then a judge or a jury decides. Right? 
That's that's exactly the case. So it's not cut and dry, but I, what I'm saying is that there's a yeah. strong argument against the positions taken by those few churches. And in stark contrast to what the overwhelming majority of churches, and I, and I read that open letter from some 20 yep. or 30 churches in the Steinbach area, I've read mm-hmm. online what a whole bunch of other churches have said on this topic. But if we're going to the retailers, and if there's... If there's this drive-in notion, then maybe that's not right either. And, and that's where the politicians then are, are perhaps treading on thinner ice because there the motivation may be, well, we're going to cut them some slack because this is for the economy. And what's happening at a church drive-in isn't necessarily driving the economy. That's where – the political machinations come to weigh in, and and not being a politician, I don't weigh in there. You've asked me for opinions under the law, mm-hmm. and yeah. if what they're doing in retail parking lots is no different in terms of risk caused to the public, well, then maybe the public health order ought to be expanded, and that's for the public health people to say. Yeah. Hey, question from a listener uh, by text here, 204-780-6868. I think you've talked with this, either with me or with uh, Jeff Courier about this, but I'll throw it out there. Uh, listener says, can a private individual file a civil action against another individual for not wearing a mask, endangering the public? Yes or no? Well, as a matter of fact, we did talk about that, Hal, and, and mm-hmm. Jeff and I talked about that, that, that there is there. Uh, there is precedent for transmission of disease, uh, and there's precedent in Canada, there's precedent in the United States, uh, but the proof of causation is the critical difference there. The, the difference maker from, for example, someone knowingly transmitting a, a sexually transmitted disease. Well, uh, leaving toilet seats aside and all the old wives' tales about that, Sexually transmitted disease gets transmitted through sexual contact, through intimate contact. Well, when we get to COVID-19, the transmission happens out in the air mm-hmm. with the, with, with the, uh, the uh, droplets that, that come out when people are breathing or coughing or sneezing. Well, how do you prove unless, and, and I used this example in the past, unless the person who has been infected, has been isolated, has been at home, and there's only one person that comes to her house or his house on a given day, and that may be a care worker, or that may be a relative, or that there, where you can narrow down the source. But except for that type of unique, almost extreme example, the, the proof that the person got it from someone who didn't wear a mask as opposed to the person got it because she went or she, he or she went to a, a store, a liquor store, or just went down the street where there was other people. So mm-hmm. the proof of causation is a, a critical turning point if someone were to launch a private action on that basis. Sako, thank you. Always interesting chatting with you about the law. Thanks a lot. Always a pleasure, Hal. Good to talk to you. Cheers. Hal Anderson Afternoons, the podcast, is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.